said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Andrew Russell. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Loving Father, we're about to open up your word and we thank you again for the blessing that Jesus gave to us, Lord of the Holy Spirit. He told us, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth and he also told us that the Holy Spirit would bring things to our remembrance whatsoever he taught us. Anything regarding the scriptures, Lord, we, the, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us understanding of these things. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so be with us now and help us to put away the distractions around us and let us, uh, let us glean from your word the things that relate to our lives and our salvation and most importantly to your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, it was the famous Margaret Thatcher, the first female prime minister of, uh, of England that once said, Europe was created by history. Europe was created by history. The famous atheist, and some say the infamous atheist, Richard Dawkins, he said you can't understand European history at all other than through religion. In other words, what they're saying here, and others have made this quote as well, the nations and governments of Europe have to recognize the influential role that both religion and history have played in their formation. Today we're going to continue with Daniel chapter 2. Now, when before COVID, I, 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 I preached on a Daniel chapter, or maybe it was during COVID, these lockdowns, but I, did, um, I, I stopped my presentations on Daniel 2 to present a couple of presentations on, on the COVID situation and, and some biblical principles from God's Word to govern us through that. Um, so I'm coming back now to Daniel 2. When I last wrapped up with Daniel, we finished with the, the four nations, the four world empires, um, as you can see here on the screen. Okay? Uh, whoop, on the screen there. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's where we finished up. Today we're going to study the, the feet and the ten toes, and we're going to see religion and history come together in the, and, uh, and why... Europeans understand that they have that the, the the governments of of the European nations today and the the very nations themselves and the cultures themselves are based upon religion and history, and we're going to look at that because the Bible actually talks about the rise of the European nations. It actually talks prophetically. Now, remember, the Bible was written what two thousand years ago, and Daniel itself was written around six hundred B.C. So. Almost 2,600 years ago, the Bible speaks about the rise of the European nations. And we're going to understand the significance of that today. But particularly in relation to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read from verse, uh, verse 40. Daniel chapter 2. I'd like us to read from verse 40. And we're going to read down. We're going to read down from verse 40 to 45. Notice what the Bible says here. And the fourth kingdom, that's where we left off. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. It's the Roman kingdom. 
But notice it goes on to say, For as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. So this kingdom will break in pieces and bruise, it says. 41 says, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. I want you to underscore something for me there. I want you to notice that in verse 45 it makes a reference to potter's clay and then it goes on later on to make a reference to miry clay. Can you see that? And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay, part of iron, kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Remember that. Verse 42 says, And as the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Speaking about that fourth kingdom now, and now it's been represented by the feet and the toes. Verse 43 then says, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Some Bibles say adhere. It's where we get the word adhesive from. It means that they will not stick together. And we'll explain that in a little bit more detail. Verse 44 says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand. How long, everyone? Forever. For as much as you saw us that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So, brothers and sisters, as we studied this, we studied that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. We read about it in Daniel chapter 2. He saw a great image. Um, as an artist has uh, given an impression of, as I've shown you there on the screen. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron. And then the feet was made of part of iron and part of clay. And the next thing that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream was that a stone that was cut out without hands, in other words, of no human devising, came and struck the image on its feet and destroyed all those nations. And this represented the God of heaven setting up his kingdom, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That kingdom is representative of God ushering in, in um, uh, eternity. And we talk about everlasting life in the context of the Bible. So this is what, this is what we've studied in context before. Okay? The Bible, as we read there, we began with the fourth kingdom. The Bible says that fourth kingdom would break in pieces and be bruised. And the prophetic uh, record confirms that the pagan Roman Empire did in fact break in pieces. So this prophecy has to do, as Daniel interprets to the king, with the rise and fall of empires. Isn't that right? How many metals were there? Gold, silver, brass and iron. There were four metals. And so as we looked at this before, we noticed that, that Daniel, what was revealed to Daniel was that Nebuchadnezzar in a dream was seeing the rise and fall of empires. We talked about that being world empires. Medo-Persia conquered the Babylonian Empire. The Greeks came along and they conquered the Medo-Persians and they ruled the world. These were world empires. And then, of course, the Romans came along and they conquered um, Greece. 
Okay? We don't live in, a, in an age where we have a world empire today, so things were vastly different by then. But God was predicting the rise of four empires, world empires, including Babylon, and history confirms that to a T. History confirms that to a T. The Bible now is indicating, in regard to the feet and toes, the rise of the European nations. And I want... I want to show you that. I want to show you that. Um, Because the Bible says that that fourth kingdom would break in pieces. Isn't that right? And I want to give you just a little bit of history. I want to quote you from an an encyclopedia, ancient history encyclopedia, to show you that what God is prophesying here is incredibly detailed and accurate. It gives us confidence, absolute confidence in the word of God and the prophecies of Scripture particularly as this prophecy then begins to relate to our time, which we'll discuss more. So let's go there. Um, Let me take you to this next PowerPoint. It says, The old empire was ravaged, among others, by Burgundians, Angles, Saxons, Lombards. To many historians, the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century AD has always been viewed as the end of the ancient world and the onset of the what? Of the Middle Ages. Historians generally agree on the year of the fall, 476 AD. The Bible talks about a people, these different peoples, they're known as Burgundians and Anglans and Saxons and Lombards. They actually, sorry, the, so the historical record, I said the Bible, the historical record, the Bible also mentions that, of course. But they come and, and they, they invaded the Roman Empire, in particularly the Western Roman Empire. And as they invaded, they claimed territory, they conquered. The Roman Empire had been weakened, weakened by infighting amongst the seasons, weakened by um, all kinds of um, immoral practices. Rome was given over to pleasure. It lost much of its strength. And these nations, these people known as barbarian tribes, came and conquered. And so we find that indeed the fourth kingdom would be broken into pieces. And because they conquered, just as the Bible said, they would be broken to pieces and it brought an end to the pagan Roman Empire as it was once known. Okay, And so we find here, let me share with you this little image here, talks about how these nations settled in. The Franks, the Burgundians, the Alemanni, these were the nations that came and conquered and took over the Western Roman Empire, took over that territory. Now, you might recognize some of those names even today. Many of us still know the name Anglo-Saxon. When we say that word, what does it refer to? It refers to the descendants of the British or the English, isn't it? The Franks, brothers and sisters, you know that people today, they're known as the French. And uh, France, of course, is represented there in Europe. Uh, We've got there the Lombards. The Lombards are the Italian peoples of today. The Suevi there on the left of your screen are the Portuguese people. The Visigoths are the Spanish people. And so we find that uh, that we can see the rise of the European nations here in Bible prophecy that, that rose on the basis of these various peoples invading the Roman Empire. So in other words, this prophecy brings us right down to where? To your time and to my time. We, if you believe Bible prophecy, we are living in the time of the feet and the ten toes. And the Bible says that soon God will set up his everlasting kingdom. Now, there's a reason why the Bible says that 
in the feet and the toes, we find also the iron. Remember the iron with clay. So Rome ceases to exist as a world empire, but the Roman kingdom does continue. I want to share with you how it does also from this encyclopedia. Notice the historical statement here. Because according to this, the Roman kingdom should still be around uh, while these Western European nations are around. And it indeed is. Let me show you that. The encyclopedia says during the same era, okay, talking about now, we just looked at the other slide, talking about how these invading barbarian tribes conquered the Roman Empire. It says during the same era, old institutions and traditions from consuls to chariot races slowly vanished away. The Senate, that's where the Caesars were and so forth, whose real power had faded centuries earlier, was the last to go. The Pope, who took the title of Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus, which means chief priest, that had been used by Western Roman emperors, became the city's ruler. Can you see that? What's, what's the encyclopedia saying? It's saying that there was a transition that took place as, as the Roman, the world Roman Empire lost its political power, it ceased to be an empire, and eventually that power that once belonged to the Caesars now belonged to who? The Pope. And what, we, what it's talking about here is the rise of what we know as Papal Rome today, or the Roman Papacy, more commonly known as the Roman Catholic Church. And there's a reason why the Bible indicates this. Let's go to our next slide. It says... His highest clergy wore silk slippers. They're talking about the Pope now, which had been a privilege of Rome senators. It was at this time that classical Rome became transformed to medieval papal Rome. Became transformed to medieval papal Rome. So when we look now at that image, when we look at that image, we see now that the feet and the toes represent the divided nations of Europe. Isn't that right? Represents divided nations of Europe. Now let's go to this text here. As you saw iron mixed with clay. See this on our slide. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay. They will mingle with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another. Just as iron does not mix with clay. I want to just share with this this portion of the prophecy. um, Before we get into the rule of law. Okay. Now. Um. I'm going to go back to the, uh, I'm going to draw from another encyclopedia, but I'm going to share with you a statement that was made. You see, the Bible says concerning these kings now, within this, the time of the European nations, that there would be those that would mingle with the seed of men. Seed is a reference to offspring, isn't that right? I have seed, I have children, but they will mingle, but they will not adhere. They will not stick together, even as iron doesn't stick together with clay. Okay, And so the Bible is talking about a time when there will be efforts, when there will be efforts to unite Europe, particularly through the offspring of men or the seed of men. Let me share with you exactly how the Bible speaks to history. We have history that helps us to understand this. Let me share with you this statement. Notice what it says here. It says, in Europe, the practice of royal intermarriage was most prevalent from the medieval era until the outbreak of World War I. The practice of what? Royal intermarriage. There was intermarriage that took place between the various monarchs of Europe. It says, sometimes enforced by legal requirement on persons of royal birth to enhance 
the prospect of territorial acquisition for a dynasty by procuring legal claim to a foreign throne. In other words, and this is written in the, in the pages of history, it's incredible how the Bible describes this. In other words, in order to gain territory in Europe, many of these monarchs who wanted supreme rulership over Europe, they would marry off, there would be agreements in place, and they would marry off their offspring, marry off their daughters, marry off their sons, to, to, um, to a monarch of a different nation. Okay? It was all part of their strategic plan. And let's say, for example, I was the king of Spain. I had my son and my son, I, I, um, you know, he, was, he had to marry now that he was born. This was, was all agreed already. He would marry the, the, um, the princess of Spain, so to, for, for example. And so as he would do that, you know, guess what? That gave me legal, that gave us as a people legal entitlement, entitlement. Because if that king died, my son would now succeed. Or if not him, perhaps his child would succeed. And so I would have legal entitlement. We would have, as a people, legal entitlement to that territory. And these were some of the efforts, these were major efforts within the European community amongst the monarchs to gain territorial acquisition. There were those that wanted to rule Europe, and many of them tried. But none of them succeeded. Do you know why? Because the Bible says they will make these efforts, but they will not cleave together, even as iron doesn't cleave with clay. Napoleon, Napoleon made this statement. He says, as we, look at the, um, as we look at this PowerPoint here, he says, I wished to found a European system, a European code of laws, a European judiciary. There would be one people in Europe. So he wanted a European system, a European code of laws, a European judiciary. There would be one people in Europe. But did he succeed? No, brothers and sisters, he did not succeed. In fact, we have a more contemporary example of God saying, look, Europe is not going to stand as one. And we have that with Brexit. Isn't that right? We have that with Brexit. And many don't realize that we actually that that is a modern example of what God has said. And there were great cries within the European Union to say, how could you leave us? No, we're trying to be as one. Isn't that right? But, of course, Brexit made a decision to move. My friends, we are seeing with accuracy the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, the Bible talked about potter's clay and miry clay. And it does that for a reason. Let me share with you what potter's, ray represent, potter's clay sorry, represents. Go with me in your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64. If you've got your Bibles there, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Notice what it says here. Isaiah 64 and verse 8. It says, But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, and thou art what? Our potter. Our potter, and we are all the work of thine hand. You know, potter's clay is representative of a people who, who have uh, their heavenly father fashion them, fashion them as a potter fashions the clay. You know, when a potter works with a piece of clay, he wants to make something beautiful. Isn't that right? God wants to make something beautiful of your life. Those that put their lives in the hands of God, he makes something beautiful. I mean, God has changed my life in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. It's all He's doing. It's because I come to Him in faith. 
And so potter's clay, potter's clay represents a people that, that walk with God. But notice miry clay in the Bible, and in the original language, those that there are two different words. Potter's clay and miry clay are two different words in the original language, in the original uh, Hebrew there. But notice sim- what's symbolic of miry clay. Let's go to Psalm chapter 40. Let's go to the 40th Psalm. Psalm chapter 40. And I want you to read verse 2 with me. Psalm chapter 40. And let's notice verse 2 together. Let's notice verse 2. The Bible says here, He brought me up also out of and what? A horrible pit, my King James Version says. He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. So miry clay is representative of something that is not good. Something that is, uh, is, uh, is a, a place where, or an experience that you don't want to have. So you're either being molded by God and your life's been molded by God or it is not. And if it's not molded by God, who is it molded by? Well, it's molded by Satan, isn't it? Because Satan is the author of sin. Satan is the author of lies. Jesus calls Satan a murderer. Satan is the reason why heavenly angels rebelled in heaven. Satan is the reason why man as well fell away from God. Not to the exclusion of his free choice, of course, but there, Satan was certainly um, behind, behind his uh, deceptions. And so even in English, we use the word Maya. Okay? We use the word Maya in English. You know what a Maya is? A Maya is a swamp or boggy ground. A mire is a swamp or boggy ground. No one wants to get stuck in the mire. And it is also used in reference to an unpleasant situation from which it is difficult to extricate oneself. Brothers and sisters, sin is a life that just lives for oneself and has no regard for God is a life of of sin in the eyes of God because you will be trampling upon God's commandments when you're not walking with God and and you cannot extricate yourself from that situation you cannot you need the Lord Jesus Christ to make reconciliation on your behalf and my behalf and so there are two classes of people here represented those that are fashioned by the potter's clay by those that are fashioned by the enemy brothers and sisters And how does this relate to the European nations? We're going to find that in a moment. But let me ask you, what would you rather be? Would you be the potter's clay or would you be the miry clay? We want God to fashion our lives. You know, the Bible says in him we live and move and have our being. We don't even take a breath without God as our creator. The Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Things exist as they are. Things we see, the life experience, is God upholding creation by the power of his word. We owe it all to him. Not that we owe him anything, but we owe him the recognition that is due. So prophecy indicates these two parties at play. And the Bible says then, let's read this text now. Let's read this text. Let's get understanding of this text. Notice here, can you see the image there? It says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. 
It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand, and it shall stand forever. What we're reading here is is a um, is an indication of judgment, isn't that right? God is going to consume all these kingdoms. He's going to break them in pieces. And what is being portrayed here is that God's judgment indicates that the nations now are not fashioned by his hands. Instead, they oppose his kingdom and they oppose his laws. They have rejected his commandments. Now, in the context of of the rise of the European nations, I want to give you an indication as to how that's taken place and how it's even taking place today. There's a man by the name of William Blackstone. Here's an, a picture of him uh, here, William Blackstone. Uh, he, um, he compiles centuries of British common law into an eight-volume series. So he was a student of law, right? And he, took, he studied centuries of British common law and he, um, he compiled that into an eight-volume series and law students study that today. You have to, they have to come to know William Blackstone and he's, the tremendous work he did. But William Blackstone, he made a statement. He said, all of British common law is based upon the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? All of British common law is based upon the Ten Commandments. Well, how did that come to be, brothers and sisters? Well, let us remember that Jesus arrived. His first coming took place in the time of the legs of iron. Isn't that right? In the time of the Roman Empire. And it was then that that people saw the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus. They saw the prophecies concerning his death for sin. They saw the prophecies concerning his resurrection. And and people began to uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They turned away from the other religions. They turned away from paganism. And they began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that point on, with, uh, with Jesus and his disciples, the gospel spread to all the world. The, whole, the world was evangelized. And many of those barbarian tribes that had invaded um, uh, the Western Roman Empire came to the knowledge of the gospel. And many of, those na- many of those tribes became Christians. And that is why Europe, the European nations, are essentially Christian by heritage. <coughs> Does that make sense? Which includes England, which is why William Blackstone said that all our British common law is based on the Ten Commandments. Because those that wrote the law, believing the Lord Jesus Christ, understood the nature of God's law. And, and that transferred, because it was in the intellect, that transferred into the constitution of England and the other nations. Christianity is what gives us the wonderful life that we have because it allows men freedom of choice and so forth. This is what William Blackstone said. Um, Let me share with you an article from Peter Costello. You know Peter Costello, he was a previous treasurer here in Australia. You see, because he makes the same statement, a similar statement, because Australia was what? Was a British colony, wasn't that right? Australia started here and was part of the, an extension of the British colony, started as a, con, a convict or a penal colony, but became a part of the British Commonwealth. Notice what Peter Costello said here as I share this, uh, this um, slide with you. 
He said, Ten Commandments are the foundation of our law and our what? Our society. Not only our law, but our moral standards and values derive, Costello said, from the Judeo-Christian tradition, or more specifically, from Australia's historic Christian faith. Australia's historic Christian faith. Brothers and sisters, are we getting the picture? You know, I was talking to my nephew one day. His name is Andrew as well. And I said to him, Andrew, do you know that it's, that it's uh, un-Australian to not, to not know your Christian roots and, and see the value in the Christian faith? And I was challenging him. I was making a facetious statement there, but I was really challenging him. He said, what? And I said, it's un-Australian, mate. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I said to him, Andrew, do you not know that our constitution is based on the Ten Commandments of God? Do you not know that the preamble to our constitution here says we give thanks to God Almighty? I said, do you not know when Parliament House opens each morning, it says the Lord's Prayer? Do you not know that? And he said to me, you're almost convincing me. And I said, look, I'm not trying to convince you. That's the facts. The reason why we have such a great life here and people have freedoms here is because the Christian foundation allows people to choose freely according to the dictates of their own conscience. The the religion of Christ is not a religion that imposes itself upon others. If you go to some countries, they have what's called a sacral society, for example, in some Islamic countries, and the religion is imposed upon the people. Isn't that right? In fact, if I went over there and preached the gospel, guess what would happen to me? Some of those countries, okay, that's what would most likely happen to me. And so, my friends, the European nations rose as profoundly Christian, profoundly Christian, okay? Where the commandments were the rule of law, as best understood by the people, as best understood by the people. But things are changing, brothers and sisters. Things are changing. And this is why we've got this picture now of Christ coming and, 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 and smiting the nations. And I'm going to talk to you about that in a moment. But let me share with you an example of how things are changing. Yes, the Ten Commandments stands. Let me share with you. This is from Michael Baird from the um, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. He did a segment on religious, religion and ethics, 23rd of September 2015. I need to give you a little bit of background so you don't get confused. What he's going to talk about is the development of Christianity within Europe. Okay, remember the prophecy talks about the rise of the European nations. So what happened was people um, embracing Christianity in Europe became Christian. Okay, But with the onset of the Middle Ages and the rise of the Roman papacy, and we're going to study this later on, and I'm not, I'm not trying to point the fingers at anyone here. Please don't get me wrong. I just want to, stay to share with you historical fact. During the Middle Ages, Rome imposed its dogmas... Um, upon people and it used governments and the state to to do that it used governments and the state you know some countries were profoundly catholic and uh, therefore they imposed certain dogmas on the people and certain beliefs on the people Um, whereas people known as protestants generally rejected that and said hey you know everyone should be allowed to freely choose that's the religion of christ and so there came a time where uh, that oppression 
Um, really, it took the lives of people. Even the Bible was suppressed as well. We'll study that as we get into Daniel chapter 7 later on. But this is what took place. But there came a time where that came to an end. That came to an end for a period of time there. And Christians began to say, well, this is good. And even, um, even political leaders and so forth began to say, hey, this is better. Actually, no, people should be allowed to choose for themselves. And this choice or this different, um, this different uh, atmosphere of, of freedom, let's call it that, what became known as secularism. It became known as secularism, where the state did not impose religious dogmas and enforce religion on the people. It was known as secularism. Okay? And, and, and once again, Christianity began to flourish in the European nations freely, particularly with the invention of the printing press, I might add. But notice what Michael Baird says here. He says, that word secular is today interpreted to mean only non-religious. And many Australians have been fooled into believing that this is the only interpretation. But I want you to notice another understanding of the term secular. Notice here in this, uh, in this article, as he goes on, he says... Secularism is ironically, he says, a uniquely Christian and Western construction. Western Europe, right? A uniquely Christian and Western construction. In other words, it's, it's Christianity and the Western world that has um, brought about secularism. He says secularism emerged in post-Reformation Europe as a way of curtailing Protestant and Catholic rivalries. Remember that word, odds there with each other. It promoting religious freedom and reducing religious influence on the affairs of state. So also, religion or organized religions are not to influence the governments. Okay, okay. This is what secularism was. No, no, no. Churches don't influence the governments to make decisions. There was a time when Roman Catholicism had tremendous influence over the government. So much so that the government favoured it above any other brand of Christian teaching and forcibly compelled individuals to conform to Roman Catholic teaching. When European states ceased enforcing one particular brand of Christianity on their, on their subjects, whether it was Protestantism or Catholicism, um, uh, citizens were relatively free to choose which version of Christian religion they wish to adhere to without fear of reprisal. Thus, secularism emerged in Christian Europe as a way of dissolving religious sectarianism, neutering the political ambitions of the church, and promoting religious freedom. That's good, isn't it? That's good. And this is what he states. This is, what he, this is historic factual. Can you understand why God now in this prophecy is, is, is talking about the rise of the European nations? Because it was a time for Christianity to flourish once again. Um, the Australian constitution, he goes on to say, was drawn up in this context and Australia was intended as a secular nation. However, this secularity was never intended to sanitize the public square of religion. This is why there is still so much religious paraphernalia in our constitution and parliamentary traditions. Consequently, our secular education system was never envisaged as prohibitive of religious instruction, only prohibitive of one religion being allowed to be imposed 
and to dominate. Very interesting. Now, Mr. Baird here, he's noticing something. He's saying, hold on a moment. Many Australians have been fooled into believing that secularism is saying, hey, we don't want any religion, okay, as far as our country, our state is concerned. People can have their own religions, but that's as far as it goes. And he says, even to the point where the education system um, is prohibiting religious instruction. He says, that's not, that's not what secularism is. Secularism prohibits one religion of being allowed to impose itself and to dominate. And to dominate. You see that? And so he's recognized what's happened even here in Australia today. What's happening in Australia today? God and God's commandments are no longer the rule of law as it once was for Bible-believing Christians. Let me share with you a couple of news articles that shows that. In recent news, Queensland Education Department came under Australia-wide scrutiny for directing teachers to stop primary schools from talking about Jesus and exchanging Christmas cards. Did you see that? The Queensland Education Department. Kids are not allowed to talk about Jesus. Is that what's supposed to happen? And people say, look, we're a secular country. No, that's not a correct interpretation. They're not even allowed to hand out Christmas cards in the school. At the same time, the South Australian Education Department's new policy noted that public schools are secular and therefore Christmas carols, singing and performing, for example, is not regulated by the department, according to Adelaide News publication, The the Advertiser. We don't want uh, Christmas carols anymore. We don't want singing and performing at Christmas. All those things have to come to a stop. A few years ago, the Andrews government of Victoria banned religious education in state schools. The Age newspaper ran an article that said, at last... Classrooms in the government school system in this state will be used for what they were intended, academic teaching and not religious instruction. Victoria's Education Act made clear that education must be free, secular, wrong interpretation, sorry, and compulsory. The Andrews government has committed to abolishing special religious instruction classes during school hours. That is as it should be. Can you see what's happening, brothers and sisters? Can you see that, um, that things are changing very quickly? People are throwing out God. And Australia and other nations, Western nations at once, love the Word of God because they understood it to be objective truth. Notice I said objective truth, not subjective truth. Not, well, subjective truth is, well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. And, you know, I'll have my own version of truth. No, no, brothers and sisters, this is objective truth. I'm just amazed at how foolish some people are when they say, oh, why would you believe in God? You can't even see him. But they never read the religious texts. Yes, God is invisible because he's a spiritual being. But the evidence for the existence of God is found in this word and particularly found in the context of Bible prophecy, brothers and sisters, that is speaking to you and to me today, to our time. This book, my friends, is for, makes, makes people intelligent doesn't make them foolish. It makes them intelligent and lets them know that there's a God that has been present from generation to generation throughout the nations, even down to our time living in the time of the feet and toes. I want to share with you another um, article. This is an, really an anti-Christian article written by the Sydney Morning Herald. And it, it, uh, it 
um, our previous census, after our previous census, this is what they wrote. To those advocating for a more secular Australia, Tuesday's release of the 2016 census results is hardly a revelation. The rising number of Australians ticking the no religion box is in line with trends worldwide. See what's happening, brothers and sisters? Including in New Zealand and the UK. In response to what in response to the question, what is the person's the religion, the person's religion, the no religion box appeared atop the list of possible answers instead of below all religions, including other religion. Do you know what the government actually did there? Actually placed the box, or, or those that did the census, uh, on the form, did the form, they placed no religion up the top. Usually it's down the bottom, isn't that right? Oh my friends, let me tell you. The devil is in the details. Won't you say amen? The devil is in the details. Oh, he doesn't want people to know their creator. He doesn't want people to know their savior. He doesn't want people to to know the prophetic utterances of God's word. Because he knows they will be lost as he is. Goes on to say, as more and more people live meaningful lives without religion... Those who identify as religious have become more diverse than ever. Australia's religious pluralism. That's talking about now the article saying that there's many religions now in Australia. Australia's religious pluralism makes our nation's tendency to privilege the Christian faith all the more problematic. I don't believe so. I believe people should be able to worship whoever they want. But it doesn't change the fact that we find our, our nation is defined by our religion and our history, our religious and historical roots, just like the European nations. But for the uh, Sydney Morning Herald says, and for this author in particular, he says it's problematic. He says it clashes with our, talking about Christianity now, it clashes with our egalitarian nature, is potentially divisive, and risks imposing a Christian outlook on everyone, including minorities, irrespective of their beliefs. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what religion he's talking about, but certainly not the religion I follow. And I believe it's not the religion that you follow either. And you know, this is what makes God angry. This is what makes God angry. Let me share with you Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 31. Notice what the Bible says here. Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 31. The Bible says... A noise shall come even to the ends of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give them that are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. A noise will come from the ends of the earth, brothers and sisters. God has a controversy with the nations. He has a dispute with the nations. Why? Because the nations are turning away from God, turning away from his commandments. And when you don't have his commandments at play, you have immorality at play. You see, when people don't have the knowledge of God and the knowledge, not given the opportunity to have the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his commandments, they don't in fact know that they are trampling upon God's commandments. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he writes, I would not have known sin except the law had said Thou shalt not covet. He quoted from the Ten Commandments. He says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's why many think we're living pretty good lives. We're pretty good people. 
Well, maybe in your eyes, but when you understand that there is a law that God has there that governs, is supposed to govern humanity in righteousness, God's creation in righteousness. Righteousness is another word for love, brother. The principles of love, not only for our neighbor, but also govern the love that we have for God is based on those principles. You know those commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images, carved images, and don't worship them. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those first four commandments govern our love for God. The last six commandments deal with loving our neighbor. Isn't that right? Honor your father and your mother. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. The law is there, brother. It's the rule of faith for humanity. It's the rule of faith for you and me. But God has a controversy with the nations because what we find is the kings of this earth and these kings that we've read about here, they turn away from God. And they, when they turn, they turn the people away from God. God is very angry and he says he will smite the nations. And guess what? He has a right to be angry. Do you know why? Do you know what God makes what makes God so angry? Do you know when you read in the Bible about his wrath? Most people misunderstand that. They see God because of his wrath as a terrible God, as a dictator of God, as a as a God of fierce judgment. And no, brothers and sisters. It makes God angry because people are, do not, are not then brought to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross, bore the wrath of God for the sins of this world. He bore the wrath of God for you and for me. He died the penalty for sin, the wages of sin is death. He died that death on your behalf and on my behalf so that, so that we may have a second chance at life eternal. When he died, he showed, God said, I can't change my law for anyone. I'm sorry. There's no problem with my law. The problem there is with you. So I will uphold my law, but I will do something. And the only thing I can do in order to, to, to bring humanity back to me, to save humanity, is for me to take their place. The Bible talks about Jesus as God coming from heaven, cloaked himself in humanity. He couldn't die as God, but as a man, he submitted himself to death for you and for me. He had that very human experience, brothers and sisters. Ladies and gentlemen, so let us, let us think twice. Let us consider what the word of God is saying to us. Psalm 40 verse 2, as we read, says, He brought me up out of a horrible pit. God wants to bring us out of the pit of sin, the pit of selfishness, the pit of pride, the pit of lust. And he wants to set our feet upon the rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants Christ to be the foundation for our lives. That's why the rock smites the image on the feet and uh, carries and destroys the nations. And God soon, brothers and sisters, will set up the everlasting kingdom. And those that are of the potter's clay will inherit eternal life. Eternal life is not a myth. Eternal life is not a fable. It is a reality. When you see God foretelling the rise of nations as, as he has even down to our time, you realize then that eternal life is an absolute reality. You know, many of us know the story about the Titanic. I want to finish here. The story of the Titanic is an example of a people who didn't realize that the end was in sight. 
You know, there was much pride involved with that ship. People were on there boasting of how great the ship was and, and what a great time they were having. People were dancing, people were living up. The band was playing the, the rock music of the day and people were rocking to and fro. But no one realized that the end was just around the corner. Isn't that right? You know the story of Titanic, most of you. But when that when when they hit that that iceberg and after they hit that iceberg things changed all of a sudden when people came to the knowledge that death was imminent for many of them you began to hear the prayers of people witnesses testify those survivors witness testify the band began to play music of a spiritual nature People began to pray, brothers and sisters. A pastor, true story, was swimming, and we fell in the water there as well, went into the water with others, was swimming to those with his last bit of life in him, appealing to people to give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, have you been saved? Have you been saved? And there were those that said no. One of the men that survived testified to that pastor coming up to him. He said the first time he came up, he said no, he didn't believe. But fortunately, the pastor came, as he went around to a few others, came back to him, not realizing, and came and asked him again. And at that moment, he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you been saved? Because this world, with its sin and suffering, will pass away soon, and God will usher in his eternal kingdom. And God commends to us his Son as a Savior the one who gave his life for us, that we may live. I want to be ready for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be ready? Well, let us confess Jesus then. Let us get our life right with God. Forget about what my husband thinks or what my wife thinks or what my father thinks and what my friends think. Brothers and sisters, this decision is between you and God and God is calling you to the knowledge of the Scriptures calling to the knowledge of his prophetic insights and calling you to be ready because he's inviting you into his eternal kingdom because he loves you and his love is shown in a saviour that died for the sins of the world. God is good. Amen. God is good. And if your decision is to follow him today, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ today, I'd like you to bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Loving Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you for the gospel message, Father. Forgive us for our foolishness, Lord. Forgive us for our ignorance of the scriptures, Father. Lord, forgive some of us who have rejected, Father, the scriptures. Many, Lord, ignorantly. Father, today you've shown us, Lord, where we are in the sphere of your plan of salvation, living in the time of the European nations, we see a decline, Father, uh, in, in, in what was once a rich experience for families and individuals, a rich experience, Lord, to walk with you and to know your saving grace and your love. And Father, we know it makes you angry because many will be lost. Your word even says, Lord, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But we thank you for the church, Lord, we thank you that we can continue to preach and teach and reach out to this world. And Lord, we see 
incredible responses to the truth of your word and to the knowledge of your son, Jesus. Father, today, Lord, there are those that are listening that want to walk with you, that want to say, Lord, forgive me, that want to say, Lord, acknowledge my decision. I want to walk with you and I want to know more. I want to grow in the knowledge of your word. And I thank you, Father, for recognizing those decisions and blessing us, Lord, as we decide as a people for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters, and I look forward to seeing you next time. This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. Rob and Beth will now sing, Father, Lead Me Day by Day. Father, lead me day by day, ever in thine own sweet way. Teach me to be pure and true. Show me what I ought to do.
folks, uh, this is William Ackland here. I've written some poems and I'd like to share this one with you today. It is rather salutary and I trust that you will take it to your heart as I've taken it to mine. And it is entitled, Almost. Almost I prayed as the new day was dawning. Almost I studied my Bible this morning. Almost a kindness to a needy one shown. Almost a kiss to a loved one blown. Almost I stopped and offered a lift. Almost an anchor to someone adrift. Almost a high as a colleague passed by. Almost a smile to a friend nearby. Almost I shared in a small child's grief. Almost I soothed and brought her relief. Almost some clothes to a family without. Almost a lift to one down and out. Almost I waved to someone I'd known. Almost some help to one who was down. Almost a word for the master I spoke. Almost a note to a mate who was broke. Almost an encouraging slap on the shoulder. Almost some cheer for one growing colder. Almost an ear for someone to share. Almost relief for pain hard to bear. Almost I widened my circle of friends. Almost an emptiness in some heart ends. Almost some time with an aged friend alone. Almost some meat on my dog's bare bone. Almost I chose to be open and kind. Almost my heart instead of my mind. Almost directions to some soul lost. Almost I gave, not counting the cost. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.